Good morning. Really, really glad you're here. If you're connecting online, we're glad you're here. We hope you bear down and, and uh, let God's Spirit move you. Let's, let's pray together. Father, so grateful for your presence. That's what makes all the difference. And now we pray that the words of our mouths and the thoughts of our hearts will please you. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Okay, Randy is my preaching partner over in Corden, Indiana. We've been working on sermons together for, I don't know, 15 years or so. I'm not sure how long it's been. Apparently, Randy was heading home from his church a week or so ago when he saw this preschool kid, about four years old, sitting on the porch out in front of his house. And when the kid saw Randy glance his way, the kid looks at him and flips him off. No reason. And even if the kid thought he had a reason, really? I mean, you've got to ask the question, where did he get it from? Where did he learn it from? From his parents? From other kids who got it from their parents? <laughs> I mean, little kids don't come up with stuff like that on their own, do they? Now, Randy thought about stopping and, and, and talking to the kid about his attitude, his behavior, but parents oftentimes don't respond too well when a stranger disciplines their kids, even if their kids desperately need some discipline. You got your own stories, right? You ever wanted to yank some kid's chain? Maybe because of their rudeness or their disrespect towards you. Or maybe because of their rudeness or disrespect towards someone that you care about deeply. Or maybe because their behavior was just so obnoxious that they were just annoying anybody who was close by. Sometimes, sometimes it's just because kids can be jerks. I mean, every kid needs a little civilizing, don't they? But some of them kind of make it a lifestyle. No matter how good their parents are, no matter how hard their parents have worked at civilizing them, they're just twits. Maybe the kids they hang out with are twits, or maybe the heroes that they worship are twits. But this is way worse, guys. Sometimes they're that way because they learn how to be jerks by watching their parents, Christian parents. I've seen it happen. I suspect you have too. I have watched kids treat me with disrespect because their parents feel the same. They hide it, maybe, the parents do, but their kids pick it up. And kids don't hide it very well. They just act out what their parents try to hide. They watch us. They learn well, ask the question, what if, what if your kids grow up to be just like you? You'd be good with that? Would God be good with that? Listen, guys, if you want great kids, you've got to try to be a good man or a good woman, right? It's not going to guarantee that your kids are going to be good, but you're going to give them a better chance. If you want God-honoring kids, you've got to try to be a God-honoring man or a God-honoring woman, that is not going to guarantee that your kids will be faithful and God-honoring, but you're going to give them a way better chance. If you want your kids to do life well, if you want your kids to stand before God someday and hear Him say to your boy, to your girl, well done, then you'd better live a life that shows them how. It's that cats in the cradle stuff, right? How do you do that? What does a life well-lived look like? 
And I'm talking about by God's standards, because I really don't care what a life well-lived looks like to you. I don't care what a life well-lived looks like to them. I don't even care what it looks like to me. I care what a life well-lived looks like to the one who holds the keys to my eternity, right? His judgment's the one that counts forever. And I think when it comes to things like this, it's really stupid to think short-term. So we're going to unpack a few verses in a tiny little letter at the end of our New Testament that talks about what a God-honoring life looks like, what a life well-lived looks like. Now, we're just going to spend two weeks here in 2 Peter, but he kicks it off by talking about this description of a life well-lived. And part of it is on God, and part of it is on you and me. God's going to make a great God-honoring life possible, but He is not going to force it on us. He's going to make a great God-honoring life possible for us, but we're not going to experience it unless we cooperate. There's some things we're going to have to do. Every one of us, guys, can live a life that's going to make our dad proud. Show you. 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to start at verse 3, because basically verses 1 and 2 are just the howdy, this is Peter stuff, right? And he starts getting to it in verse 3, and Peter says, By his divine power, by God's power, God has given us everything we need for a godly life. We've received all of this by coming to know him, the one who has called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. God has already given us everything we need for a godly life, a great life, a God-honoring, self-respecting life, Peter says. Do you buy that? Do you think that's true? That God has already given to you everything you need for a life well lived. But if we Jesus followers did buy it, wouldn't you expect that you would see a whole lot more of us living great God-honoring lives? I mean, I've spent my whole life around Jesus followers, and I've seen, and I have seen some Jesus followers who live amazing lives. I mean, they have incredible strength, courage, peace, and joy. Even when times are hard, they're amazing. But so many others, so many Jesus followers are mired in mediocrity and fear, right? Their lives are really no different from those who live life without Jesus at all. And Peter says God's already given you everything that you need for a better kind of life. So is he wrong or are we doing it wrong? Those are the two options, right? The problem is when our lives are no different, when our lives aren't any better, of course they blow us off. Why wouldn't they? They blow us off as hypocritical twists. We just say one thing and live another. Our kids blow God off. By watching us, they treat him as an impotent old fool. And God blows us off. He does. Our worship. Now, I'm not going to unpack this piece this morning. It, it's worth it, but let me just say this thing. It is not what we do inside this room that makes up for what we do outside these walls. It's what we do outside these walls that makes what we do in here acceptable to our God. Do you understand that? It's a principle that you're going to find in both the Old and New Testament. The problem is, guys, I, 
I'm not sure that we always want to live a godly life. I mean, I want to live a life that's godly enough to make it to heaven, of course. But I want to have some fun, too. Because we kind of make the assumption that if you have a godly life, it's not going to be all that fun, right? Well, I'm going to make the assumption, guys. I don't know if you're going to push back here, but I'm going to assume that living a God-honoring life is going to make your life better. I'm going to assume that it's going to make you better at life. I'm going to assume that it's going to make you stronger, more content, more courageous, more at peace, that you'll have more self-respect, more purpose, more meaning. I, I know a lot of people think that a godly life is going to mean a boring life. Well, if that's the case, how is that ungodly life working out for you? Be honest. And if that's where you're living, right, be honest. How's it going? Are you happy, satisfied, content, self-respect? Do you honestly think that doing life with God, for God, God's way is going to make your life worse? Do you really think our Creator, the one who is perfectly good, perfectly wise, perfectly loving, is just trying to suck the life out of our life? Peter says, by His divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life, a better life. It goes on. He says, because of His glory and excellence, because of God's glory and excellence, He has given us these amazing promises. And you need to stop there for just a second. You see, He doesn't give us promises because we are so amazing. Thank God. He gives us these promises because He is so amazing. Because if it was based on how good we are, we'd kind of be hosed, right? He says, these are the promises that enable us to share His divine nature. In other words, He's trying to develop the image of God that He has planted in every one of us. And He says, to escape the world's corruption, which is caused whenever men just kind of follow their own human desires. We don't buy that. We kind of think a life well lived means you've got to follow your heart. And Peter says, uh-uh. You follow your heart, you're going to end up in a mess. See, we want a great life. As Jesus followers, we say we want to live a God-honoring life. But I think we settle way too often. We settle for way less than God would have for us. We settle at so many things. But I'm good at settling, aren't you? I settle. I tell you that I'd like to lose some weight. And I still do. And I know I'd be healthier if I were skinnier. I'd have more energy. I'd sleep better, probably be more productive. And and I really would like to lose some weight as long as I don't have to eat less or exercise more. So I settle. Right? John's talking about his blood pressure pills. He's only taken one. I take, I think, four. Been high for a long time. Doc Crumb, bit of a twit. He says that if I eat better, cut out the salt, cut out bacon, other good stuff like that, it'd probably help. I'm not going to do that. So I settle. Just give me another pill, Doc. So far, he's cooperated. I'm good at settling. We settle in our marriages. We settle in our jobs. We settle in our studies. We settle in our parenting. We're settling for financial mediocrity because we can't say no to our desires, all right? 
and we settle in our life with God way too often. Because we say things like we'd like to be healthier spiritually, which, as John said, is way more important than being healthy physically, infinitely more important. We settle. Peter says God has given us everything we need for living a great God-honoring life. He's given us these great and precious promises if we're willing to claim them, if we're willing to do our part to access what God makes available to us. Because, listen, guys, God isn't going to force you to be mature. He's not going to force you to be healthy. He's not going to force himself on you. He gives you what you need for a great God-honoring life, but he's not going to force you to take what he gives you. He makes these great and precious promises, but he's not going to force you to do the things that are necessary to claim those promises. He's a gentle God, guys. He wants us to choose him. He wants us to choose to do life with him, for him, his way, but he honors our freedom to tell him no. He honors our freedom to settle. But if you tell him yes, he's going to make your life better. He's going to make you better at life. Do you believe that? That's what Peter says. Next. That's where he goes. Verse 5. In view of all this, make every effort. In view of this, add. You add. You do stuff, guys. Make every effort. We're not, we're not good at making every effort. We make some effort, but when it gets tough, we tend to quit, even if it's right. If it's too hard, we quit. Takes too much effort, we look for an easier path. But listen, guys, being a mature man or woman, being an adult, means that you make every effort to do what is right even when it's hard. I mean, sometimes as an adult, you've got to do the hard stuff because it's right. Right? In view of this, Peter says, make every effort to respond to God's promises. In view of his giving us everything we need for a great God-honoring life. In, in view of these great and precious promises, Peter says, you've got to make an effort to respond to these promises. Because if you don't, you're going to leave God's gifts unopened. If you don't respond, you're going to settle. Don't settle. Verse 6. So, add to your faith. Add to your faith. That's kind of a weird phrase. Supplement your faith. Another Bible puts it like that. Make every effort to add to your faith. Work hard at adding to your faith. You must do your utmost from your side. God has done his part. Here's your part if you want to accept what God offers you. And Peter tells us seven things. These are seven things that we add to the equation. God does his part. This is our part. Seven things. We add goodness. We add knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. We try to do good. We try to grow in our knowledge of God and God's ways. We try to exercise God's or self-control with God's help. We try to do what's right even when it's hard. We try to be there for our brothers and sisters. And we even try to love on people who diss us. And all of a sudden, you're living a different kind of life. A better kind of life. And guys, it works. 
You see, sometimes we think that once we accept, once we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, once we're baptized, we've done our part. That's it, right? We've done our part. Maybe you've got to add a little bit of church to your life, maybe a few tweaks to your worst habits, but you've already done the heavy lifting, right? It's interesting, isn't it, that they call graduation ceremonies commencement. They call them commencement. And a lot of people treat graduation as kind of the high point of their life, and that's when we're done. That's the best it gets. How sad is that? Commencement means it's just starting. It's the beginning. We commence with life after that. Baptism is your commencement. It's your commencement. That's what gets you started on a life with God. But you're not done. You're not done if you want to taste a life well lived. The kind of life that God wants you to live. Now we try to add to our faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Because if you don't, you settle, right? In fact, you not only settle, but you might actually lose what you gained. You might end up drifting away from God, which we're going to talk about a whole lot next week. And when you don't add these things, it puts you in a dark place. Because if you do drift, you're going to be worse off, Peter says, than when you started. That's hard to imagine. We're going to talk about that. So what I want to do is just take a couple of minutes more and try to unpack what he's talking about. He says, add to your faith goodness. Add to your faith goodness. Do good. Do good. Now, we usually twist this up a little bit. If you've had kids, I bet you've said a thousand times, be good, right? Be good. When you're at their house, be good. When you're at church, be good. When you spend the night at grandma's house, be good. You're walking out the door and you look at your kids, be good now, right? Be good. And you're not telling them to be good. You're telling them not to be bad. That's what be good means, right? Don't be bad. Don't be a jerk. Peter means more than that. He actually means do good. Do good. Look for a way to do what a good man would do. Look for a way to do what a good woman would do. Be a good person. Now, we repress that part of us sometimes, I think. We're not always sure how it's going to be accepted, received. But, guys, that's part of the image of God in us. That part of us that wants to do what is right and noble and good. And the Apostle Peter says, don't repress it. Cultivate it. Live it out. Be the kind of people who look for a way to do good for someone. Do you know why? Because that's how God is. And that's what God does. And that's what we do as his kids. And then he says, add knowledge. Add knowledge. And he's not talking about Wikipedia smart, right? He's talking about spiritually smart. He's talking about the knowledge of God smart, word of God smart. I'm telling you guys, I've known a whole lot of really, really smart people who are absolutely ignorant when it comes to God. I've learned a whole lot of stuff, really important stuff from people who are really, really smart, who are clueless when it comes to who God is and what God wants. And when you stand before God, which you will someday, do you think he's going to be impressed by how much you know if you don't know Jesus? 
So what do you need to know to live a great God-honoring life? And how are you going to add that knowledge to your faith? Unfortunately, guys, you know it. The vast majority of Jesus' followers are biblically illiterate. I mean, God gave us his word. You read it. You keep reading it. Do you know that you can study the Bible for your whole life, and every time you open it up, you can still open up new things to you? Sometimes if the Spirit has something He just wants to drill into us, He just makes it just jump off the page for us. And did you know that it's silly, foolish to expect to live a great God-honoring life without spending time in His Word? It's a habit. Now, I've suggested this before, and I'm going to do it again. I don't think you need to spend an hour a day studying the Bible and praying. I don't think you need to try to read through the whole Bible once a year. I know there are people who do that, and that's flat-out cool. I don't even press and say that you've got to read a chapter a day. If that's your goal, that's cool too. I suggest that you start with just one verse a day. Just one verse a day. Even that's going to add to your spiritual knowledge. In fact, I'd much rather have you really chew on one verse a day than skim through a chapter or two as a chore. Now, if you've never tried it before, I'm going to suggest again the YouVersion Bible app. They've got something in there called the verse of the day, and you can sign up for it. It's a free app that you can get on just about any kind of a platform, and every day they will send you the verse of the day. It's an amazing gift, this YouVersion. I mean, it's free. It's a gift to the church from Craig Groeschel's Life Church. You can set it up so that you can actually read the verse of the day in different translations. If you want, you can press on a little video right next to it. That one was from a couple of days ago. Rick Warren started talking about 2 Timothy 3.16. This one here, the verse of the day, was yesterday, and you can press on that. And a good Bible teacher is just going to reflect for just a minute or two, tell you about what it means and how you can apply it to your life. Short easy. I mean, you can just read the itself, or you can compare it in different versions. If you want to dig further, you can listen to someone talk about it. If you want to dig really further, they've got a bunch of Bible studies that are attached to it. And if you do something like this every day, it means that every day you're bringing God into your life. Every day you're bringing God's Word into your life, and you chew on it a little bit, and it can make a difference, a real difference. Let's go on. Then Peter says, You've got to hate this one. Add self-control. Self-control. Don't you hate that? In other words, when I have the urge to do something like make a purchase that I really shouldn't, don't. (laughs) When I have the urge to say something or do something out of anger or frustration that I shouldn't, bite your tongue. When we have the urge to do something we suspect is morally wrong, don't. You don't have to follow your heart when your heart leads you away from honoring God. I want to show you something that's really important. This is, this is important and it's, it's kind of weird. If you've been around church for a while, you've probably heard of the fruit of the Spirit, right? Fruit of the Spirit. If you haven't heard of that over in one of the other New Testament letters, the Apostle Paul talks about what he calls the fruit of the Spirit. What he means by that is that if you're a Jesus follower, these are the things that the Holy Spirit is trying to cultivate inside of you. 
Holy Spirit, if you're a Jesus follower, it's inside you. And he's trying to grow the image of God in you. And he tries to cultivate love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In other words, God is trying to make you more joyful. He's trying to make you more peaceful. He's trying to help you be more patient. He's trying to make you more kind, all of those kind of things. He's trying to, he's trying to, to morph you into the image of Christ, to make you more like God, like father, like kids. It's the image of God in us. He's trying to make us better, to make us better at life. Well, Paul calls self-control one of the fruit of the Spirit. And then Peter says self-control is something that we add. He doesn't talk about it as the fruit of the Spirit. He talks about it as something that we add to our faith. Who's right? Peter or Paul? Answer is both, right? God offers you the gift, but he doesn't force you to open it. He offers you all these fruit. He doesn't cause you to, he doesn't force them on you. You've known Jesus followers who are not very loving, not very joyful, not very peaceful, not very patient, not very good, gentle. And you've known a lot of Jesus followers who exercise no self-control, right? The Spirit's there to help you. But you're going to have to try you're going to have to respond. He's not going to force himself on you. He's not going to force you to be more loving. You can stay hateful if you want. He's not going to force you to do good. You can stay a self-absorbed twit if you want. If you don't try to exercise self-control, you have the ability to box the Holy Spirit off the boards, all right? Peter says, add to your faith. Knowledge, add to your faith. Self-control. Add to your faith, patient endurance, perseverance, that grit, that stubborn refusal to give up, to give out. It's not hard to exercise self-control once. It's hard to do it over and over and over again when the temptations are relentless and the passions are intense. It's not hard to be good once. It's not hard to be good when it doesn't cost you much. Endurance and perseverance means over time, under pressure, when it costs. That's when it matters. That's perseverance. And then Peter says, add godliness. Add godliness. That's a kind of a weird one. How do you do that? How do you add godliness to your life? Let me make just a couple of suggestions. I think it starts with just becoming aware of his presence. Wherever you are, God's with you. He's in this room. Do you believe that, guys? He's an amazing God, and he's here. When I go home, he's there with me. At work, school, he's there. Kroger, Lowe's, Kohl's, he's there. Because we literally do life with God. And if you actually recognize that, then you can begin to ask the question, okay, what would you have me do, God? What would you have me say, God? What would a God-honoring man do? What would a God-honoring woman do? Not just a good man, a good woman. What would, what would a Jesus follower do right here, right now? I'm in your presence, God. What can I do that will honor you? What can I do that will bring you honor to the people who are watching me? Live in his presence. Do what a God-honoring person would do. Verse 7, just two more. Supplement your faith, add to your faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, endurance, 
godliness. The next one is brotherly affection, brotherly love. In fact, the word that Peter uses is the word Philadelphia. You've probably heard Philadelphia means the city of brotherly love, right? It's just a Greek word, brotherly love. Well, Peter says, make sure you're loving on your one another's. We talk about that a lot here. We're family, guys. You cannot do life with God God's way, isolated from your Christian brothers and sisters. You were not made to go it alone. You need them and they need you. Which is why the new covenant, our covenant with God, tells us to serve one another, bear one another's burdens, offer hospitality to one another, encourage one another, spur one another on. We're told over and over and over again to love one another. And that means the people sitting near you. Look around the room. These are your one another's, guys. Peter says, add to your face some brotherly love. How are you going to love on your brothers and your sisters in this room? One more. This is how he wraps it up. And he says, make sure you add. This time it's not Philadelphia. This time it's agape. Love. A God kind of love. This is a different kind of love. This is about loving people who are entirely unlovable. It's about loving people who deserve nothing from you at all. It is the hardest kind of love. It's a God kind of love, the kind of love that God has for us when we are completely unlovable and deserve nothing from Him at all. It's unconditional. It's without conditions. A God kind of love doesn't love them because of who they are. It's about who He is and who we are trying to be. And it is magical. That's our part. That's our part after we accept Jesus as our Savior and Lord. That isn't what saves you. It's how to live out that great life that God wants you to have, that great God-honoring life. And guys, these are not things that are experiments that we're supposed to try once or twice. They're habits. They're habits we build. Randy puts it like this. He says, we don't rise to the level of our goals. We fall to the level of our habits. Make these habits. This is who we are, what we do. And there's so much at stake, isn't there? So much at stake. Do you actually think your life is going to be better or worse if you try living this stuff out? Is it going to make your life better or worse? Do you think the lives of people around you, your family, your friends, your colleagues, you think their lives are going to be better or worse if you try to live this stuff out? How about your kids? Your grandkids, they're going to watch you. They're going to be shaped by you. Sometimes, even when they try to resist that, they're still going to echo you in some fashion. If they watch you, are they going to catch things like goodness and wisdom and self-control and godliness and brotherly affection and agape love? Now, you're living it out. isn't going to guarantee that they will, but you're going to give them a shot. You'll give them a shot. Don't settle, guys. For your sake, don't settle. For his sake, don't settle. For the sake of the people around you that are watching you, don't settle. Let's be Jesus followers. I'm going to pray in just a moment, and Steve's going to lead us in a song. And If you want to talk about any of these things, if you want to get started on this life with God, because all of this stuff is something you add to your faith. It's adding to your commitment to Jesus as Lord. If you haven't made that commitment yet, let's talk about doing it right now. I'm going to sit right on down here. Come on down. We'll talk, right? There's an elder praying for you back in the prayer room. You go back and talk to him. Let's talk about it, okay?
maybe that you're looking for a church home. You need some one another's around you. We'd love to do that for you. If you want to do that, come up. Let's talk. Let's talk about these things. Let's pray. Father, for your grace, because we're not very good at this stuff, we give you thanks. But give us the courage, give us the wisdom to try to live it out, to taste that life that you really desire us to live. In the name of Christ, we pray these things. Amen.